The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. Welcome to the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. This is Jason Poblet, your host, uh, talking to you today from Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. Thank you again for joining us. And folks, keep your questions coming because today's show is a result of listeners asking for the special guest that we have on the show today. Uh, we, we really want your questions, and you can send them two ways, by email, or you can email us or send us by WhatsApp or your favorite app an audio question, and we'll be happy to put it on the air. If you do send us an audio question, please say that you give us permission to post it. So today we have a good friend, a scholar, and he really is a scholar, by the way. You'll, you'll figure out now why. And just an all-around good people, Dr. Andy Gomez. Andy Gomez, as he prefers to be called from down in Miami. Andy, how are you doing? Good morning, Jason. My pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on. And before we uh, jump into the subject matter, I'm going to say, uh, uh, talk you up a little bit because I think people need to know nah, all this, all this <laughs> stuff. You, no, no, we, ha we have to because a lot of people haven't listened to you before, maybe don't know you. Plus, you've done so much. And I think folks need to know about some of the good work Andy has done. Andy um, retired from the University of Miami a few years ago. He spent uh, almost 40 years um, in, in higher education uh, at the University of Miami, right? It's, 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 it's roughly around. Well, in a couple of places. I'm, couple at the of University places. of Miami, I was 19 years. 19. It's, it's a long time. And the university, uh, for his service, awarded him, um, upon his retirement, uh, this presidential uh, medal by then-president Donna Shalala. There's been some changes there, which we'll talk about in a minute. During his time at UM... He taught many courses, including one that we're going to talk about today, uh, Cuba, uh, including Cuba after Castro, U.S.-Cuba relations on the Cuban Revolution. And he's lectured extensively on Cuba and Cuba transition issues, which is uh, the topic that he and I talk about all the time. And we're going to chat about today, uh, including some recent news that was made yesterday by the Biden administration. He's the author of Social Challenges Facing Cuba. Prior to that, he served as a consultant at numerous agencies for uh, the U.S. government. Uh, he's advised foreign countries, organizations, corporations on international theory, policy, and practice. He has served as a non-resident fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institute from 2008 to 2012. I'm not going to list all the different news organizations that he's commented on. There are a bunch of them there, left, right, center, you name it. Uh, he, he's, we'll post all this on the internet uh, as well so you folks can read about his background. But the interesting part that I didn't know, well, I did know, but I had no idea that, because uh, we haven't, it's been a while, and we haven't talked about Andy's prior life. But before we jump into Cuba, Andy, you served as the Undersecretary of Education and Chief of Staff for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. How did you end up in that job? Oh, that was a fascinating, Jason. Thank you for having me again. Uh, after I finished uh, graduate school at Harvard, uh, I was asked to join uh, the Bill Well, the Governor Bill Wells administration. At the time, uh, you know, we think of Massachusetts as the, the beacon of uh, education. And really, uh, what uh, it was a lot of hard work because. Uh, we introduced uh, education reform from K-12 all the way through uh, the university system. Uh, they wow. were, it, 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 New England basically, uh, the focus had been always been on private education at all levels. And what we did in a nutshell was to try to improve our public system, which it, we really did 
from all the way from kindergarten through the university level. That's, you know, and that's, um, before we jump into Cuba, let me ask you something, because I'm, I, I've, I'm fascinated by American education. I don't think it's in, in most, well, you're in a great state for education, I think, but um, I think a lot of the new generation uh, has been cheated, especially in parts of the public school system across the country. Uh, maybe they're not getting prepared as well as they should be for college. And you've, you've had your foot in all these camps. If there were one thing you, th you were advising, let's say Biden or Trump or any, anybody, Secretary of Education of the United States on reform, what, where would you focus the energy right now? We have to focus the energy right now in the primary levels. And let me explain to you why. As psychologists and psychiatrists said, you know, uh, children's uh, developmental ages by the age of seven, they have developed already what they are going to be uh, for the rest of their life. So education has to be the foundation of any country, any community, uh, any home. And unfortunately, uh, it saddens me that, for instance, now uh, with this pandemic, that there's so many children in the United States that because of poverty or low social economic levels, they have no access to the internet. Therefore, they have not been getting the education lessons virtually. So uh, I think we have a long way to go in this country. Uh, it is the greatest country in the world. Uh, I also think in this country, uh, the education community needs to further diversify. And I'm not talking about teachers and administrators. I'm talking about history books and the role that history has played in this great country. Let me give you a very concrete example. And some people might disagree with me. We have witnessed in the last couple of years, for good or bad, uh, the tearing down of monuments across the United States because it represented a, 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 a sad period in our country's history, which was mostly the Civil War and slavery. So many, many of the statues of generals uh, or individuals that supported slavery have actually been torn down. I think differently. I think that you teach history so the good things are repeated and the bad things are learned so folks don't make the same, same mistakes. You just cannot erase history. That's, you know, that's um, living here in the, uh, you know, in Virginia. Sure. We, we, we lived through a lot of, you know, that whole statue removal business, in fact. Yeah. About a block from our office, there was a statue had been there for a long time. It was owned by a private organization and it was a, a, a lone Confederate soldier uh, monument for the men who died and fought the war on, back then during the, uh, during the Civil War. And it was right in the middle of the, um, right in the middle of the street in Old Town. It kind of served like a, like a median type thing. And um, they, it had to be removed because the, um, the owners of the, uh, of, of the statue felt that it was going to be vandalized and, um, you know, destroyed. So they, they opted to remove it. And then the city came and they paved over that space. And one of the things that, with, well, no matter what side you're on, Andy, and I agree with you on this issue, that you need to know the history. And if you remove the symbols, whether good or bad, from a particular period, you've also potentially removed education because there are ways to put these monuments in context, for example, so that future generations who may not even read. In fact, I find it fascinating. And then we'll jump onto our topic. Uh, we showed another show on this one. We could talk a lot about this one, but uh, given our shared cultural background and what happened to our respective families, you can't erase any of that. And no. nowadays the civil war is barely taught in schools. Uh, you, you don't learn about the reconstruction period, by the way, the period that came right after the civil war. Absolutely that, not. That the reconstruction period, as you know, 
laid the seeds, if you will, for uh, the civil rights movement that came many, many, many decades later. But it, it's it's a, a, a sad uh, chapter. I, I it was tough you know, to watch. Did, it was I tough did. to watch the whole statue removal and the, sure. the fighting with each other was just tough to watch. It's devastating, you know. Given what our country has gone through, and again, depending, this is not about an issue of, of who you supported or not supported, but given what our country just went through, you know, uh, I think it's a lesson. It's a lesson in civic or the lack of civic education that we have in our schools. Uh, I mean, students in high school don't take U.S. government until their senior year. Wow, I didn't know I, that. Wow. I think that's a mistake. Wow. You know, or, or, or even so, comparative politics. Mm. What makes our country so great if we don't understand countries that don't have the, democ the democratic system that we live under? So, you know, uh, and then on top of that, you know, social media and some of the information again on all sides that has been out there i mean I, I you know i i used to when 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 i was still back at the university uh, at the beginning i would have students uh and when they wrote papers in their reference page quote put down wikipedia oh, yeah. wikipedia is not a reference <laughs> you know there have been, there have been uh, court cases there's a famous one that lawyers that track that sort of thing. There was a judge who actually admonished um, a lawyer for using Wikipedia as a source, as he should have, because the Wikipedia is not a reliable source for a, a, a complaint. But in most cases, he shouldn't be citing to Wikipedia. It's a good place, I guess, to research, but I wouldn't be citing to it as authority. But what we don't do today in school, which um, worries me more than anything, mm -hmm we do not teach students to analytically and critically think for themselves. I, when I lecture my university students, I would stop every so often and say, and ask them, does everybody believe what I'm telling you? Is, does anybody wanna challenge me or give, me, or give the, your, your own opinion? And that, that uh, to me, that's extremely important because if you challenge, that idea, you learn from that challenge. Mm. It helps you make up your own mind and what you stand for, rather than be led. And sometimes being led by different groups of different individuals is not the way to go. Well, th this is a good segue, Andy, to the topic we're gonna tackle today because you've managed, and I haven't even read all the work you've done, and I, we will post this, link to his bio so you all can see some of the work he's done uh, that included, by the way, being named ambassador at large for human rights, which fits right in the space where we, where we want to go. This conversation about challenging ideas, the people of Cuba 90 miles away um, are now in an interesting phase doing exactly that in a, in a place where you really can't do it, but remarkably, I see this new generation, uh, people who are not household names, if you follow this issue, challenging the ideas and the established order using different mechanisms, including this week, uh, a, a 15 Catholic priests, yeah. not, not bishops. I'm talking about men who went to the seminary after Pope John Paul opened that seminary back in the late 1990s and have been groomed within that system now, putting their names on letters, uh, challenging the young people. Uh, there was a Sunny Cedar movement, which I don't quite understand too much what that's all about, but it's different groups that are talking and challenging. And it's remarkable that in a communist country just 90 miles away, a place that you were born in, that you care deeply about, that you stay engaged in because I know you want something better for them than what they have. What, you know, what lessons do you draw from what they're able to do in that closed society and what you urge your students here to do? Uh, do you see that? I mean, do you think people here just don't know what they have? And they, I guess until they lose it and the people down there, because they, they don't know any different down there, do they? Most of them. So what do you attribute this, this new 
this newfound uh, movement of young people saying enough. It's almost what I would call escape from the sad reality that they live each day, both politically, economically, and socially. You gave two very good examples. Yesterday, there was also a large group of students that gathered in front of the Ministry of, of Culture. Oh, that's right. Because they wanted to honor the founding father of Cuba, Jose Marti. The Minister of culture himself went on the street and hit one of these individuals. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, that's, that, that folks is like, you know, the imagine the, we don't have a ministry of culture here, but imagine a cabinet secretary walking right. out and beating up on a, on a student protester. I mean, to, to, give, give the listeners a little context. I mean, it, it, it is surreal. It, it, it it's never happened before happen. down there. No, I no. mean, I had to, I literally had to watch it two and three times to really believe it. But that's the nature of the beast of living in Cuba. You know, um, you know, I visited Cuba a number of times. Right. And when I've gone down there is to hear and learn from people. So I have a better understanding. In Cuba today, you have about 11.3 million people. Nine million of those were born after the start of the Cuban revolution in 1959. But to go a little further, almost 2.5 million of the 11 were born after the fall of the Soviet Union. So when you go to Cuba, you get different perspectives depending on the age group. Uh, in Cuba, it's, it's relatively, it's a no population, interesting enough. But the, the young, the young Cubans, which is what concerns me a great deal because those that have been able to come to the States uh, are, have, have become apolitical. They have been brainwashed to believe in nothing. That's why, you know, you mentioned my book uh, that I wrote, Social Challenges Facing Cuba, uh, because to me, after visiting Cuba and then going to East and Central Europe while they were going through the transition, what I became to realize was that the damage that totalitarian regimes do to populations and therefore, and going back to the case of Cuba, 62 years after the start of the revolution, to me, the biggest challenge will moving forward is not going to be changing the political or economic system. It's going to be changing the minds of the population to support change. And I use the word change loosely because change is the unknown factor. And by being an unknown factor, depending on what spectrum on, on the side you are, it can be positive or it can be negative. And it also causes tremendous psychological trauma. Concrete example, when in one of my trips to Cuba, and you know, Jason, that I like to uh, concentrate uh, my research and my studies on young uh, Cuba right. between That's the right. ages of 18 and 30. Mm -hmm. I sat with a group of students, high school students in Havana, and I, we just started talking about what they were studying, what they were learning and whatnot. And this one young lady sitting to my right was very interesting because she's, she told me that she was studying political science, which I thought, well, this is interesting in Cuba. I said, okay, well, tell me a little bit more. And she told me about, you know, the Marxist, Leninist ideology, whatnot, so forth, so on, okay. But then I asked, I said, so anything that sticks in your mind that you've learned recently? And she says, yeah, uh, we just finished studying the issue of human rights. And I thought to myself, well, this is gonna be interesting. And I said, well, can you tell me what they taught you? She says, well, human rights is defined by the state. Wow. And I kind of looked wow. at her 
And I kind of looked at her and said, now, how can I answer this? And I said, let me answer you and for all of you here present. And they were all high school students. You realize that in the free world is completely the opposite. But not only that, you are born with these rights as an individual. It was like talking to a wall. Wow. It, they, they just could not grasp the concept that an individual could determine to have freedoms and to have these rights and moving forward. That it was the state that controlled what you can and cannot do. Now, how do you change that overnight? It's impossible. Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. It takes, it's impossible. We're, we're going to take a quick break uh, and then we'll, we'll be right back. But before we, we, we break, I wanted to just lay the scene. I, when I read Andy's book many years ago, the one thing I came, I came away, it, it's an interesting read. We're going to provide a link to folks. I think you should take a look at this because especially if you're interested in transitions, it's an important read. Uh, it's not just applicable to Cuba. There's a lot of lessons you could draw from it. But it was almost like a sobering, bordering on politically depressing book because of what he just said. Uh, this is uh, when a country lives under a closed society like this and they program you. I think I have to underscore listeners here. The system in Cuba from the moment you're born to the moment you die somehow is touching you and they're programming you. And it's very subtle. I think it's systemic and systematic uh, uh, persecution. But the point for this discussion is, it's what Andy's saying, it is uh, a complete programming of the mind to think a certain way. The young people, as he was talking about earlier, you have to start young to teach values, and that starts at the home, of course. Um, but in Cuba, it's free thinking, sure, if it's a certain ideology, and, and we're going to get to that in a second. And uh, when we come back, Andy, if you could talk a little bit more about that, because you you've told me many times it's going to take a generation. We're not going to see it. You and I probably will not see it unless they invent some yeah. miracle drug that we can live to 150. And then we're going to talk about Jan Psaki at the White House yesterday, uh, mm -hmm. made, made, made some statements about Cuba policy that uh, we'll dive into. So we'll be right back. Andy, before the break, we talked a little bit about your book. And many years ago, you told me to temper my expectations about, you know, if everything went perfectly well and the Cubans managed to retake their government and become a government of that's truly controlled by the people, not controlled by a group of oligarchs now. I don't believe Cuba anymore is a, uh, there's a lot of ways you can draw the lines, but I think Cuba's become an oligarchical type state where you have a family absolutely. yeah it's like a criminal yeah, cartel absolutely. it's a criminal cartel yeah. in my book it's a criminal cartel very yeah. well said it's a criminal cartel uh, of people who are not some of them most of them were not around when their fathers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts and uh were in you know all the fighting and all that jazz and uh that happened back in the in the in the late 50s and early 60s these people are most of them are out for money and uh, it's, it's corrupt criminal behavior, but and dangerous, by the way, for the hemisphere. But you told me, Jason, you told me, Andy, hey, Jason, forget it. It's going to take a generation at least. What, do you, what, what did you mean by that? Because it comes across very well in your book. But for those who haven't read your book, what did you mean by that? I just don't think that you can erase what 11... 0.3 million people have lived for 62 years, depending on when they were born, overnight. Uh, and then we have to take into consideration and be also very realistic that Cuba was not necessarily a free democratic country even before 1959. I mean, I can go back to the establishment of the Republic in 1902 in Walkas, but that will be very boring to see, <laughs> to see how much there was political instability 
throughout the history of our country, number one. Number two, uh, the civil society, the institutions of civil society that maintain and sustain a democracy, to me, were always absent in Cuba. They were very poorly established. Well, you know, some people would, some people in South Florida would be very upset with you with that. I t- I happen well, to agree with you, by the way, but some people down there be very upset with that. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I they've gotten upset at me before, but I think <laughs> you know, as we as, as we move forward, we have to face the the reality. Right. Uh, for example, Jason, you know, sixty two years, as you said, I, you know, I was born in Cuba and left as a six year old boy. You know, for, you know, for the American audience, Andy, hold that thought. But for the American audience, when he says that, I was talking to a good friend of ours, Father Eria, uh, recently, and we went through how many Congresses there had been since the since the Cuban Revolution. There have been 31 U.S. Congresses since the Revolution in Cuba, yeah. and and 13 presidents, including Eisenhower, Kennedy, That's right. Johnson, That's right. Nixon, Ford. Let me get these right. Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. So for those of us on this side, I wasn't born in Cuba, but I've been monitoring. I've been following it very closely. What Andy's talking about as Americans, even something Father Edia says, and see if you agree with this. He tells me all the time, look, America has to pursue their national interest. That's it. But leave the Cubans to fix their problems and they'll fix it. But you just have to give them space to do it. Well, I would agree, but, uh, you know, I, I recently made the, the statement here in, in this past week and actually uh, in some of the uh, some of the media that called me immediately after uh, Jen Psaki made her coming at, at the press conference yesterday. You know, after 62 years and all the list of presidents and you're, you're correct, both Republicans or Democrats. U.S. Cuba policy, our foreign policy towards Cuba should be based on the United States national security and national interest. Let me be specific. If there were to be Russian troops, Russian ships, Chinese presence in Cuba, Iranian, for instance, now that Iran and the Cubans claim that they're working on a COVID-19 vaccine. Those are issues that should raise our eyebrow because Cuba has no way financially of paying these countries. The only way would be by allowing them a presence on the island, which then becomes a national security issue for the United States being 90 miles away. On the other hand, it is about time, and I have told this to those inside the Biden administration that have asked me, it is about time the U.S. policy towards Cuba be taken out of Miami and be focused in Washington, of course, with consultation with the exile community. But, you know, uh, all those presidents that you listed on both parties that have come and they have, and I listened to many of them as I I grew up in South Florida uh, and made a lot of promises to different groups, depending on what they believe the politics to Cuba should be. And after 62 years, Nothing really has happened. So change has to come from within the island. That's right. And that change might not be very positive at the beginning. We are going to have to decide on this side how we can support it and advance it. But to assume, and I, and, and I have a lot of respect for Jan Saki. She's, 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 she's very talented. But to assume, as she said, that Americans and Cuban Americans are the best ambassadors to bring democracy to Cuba 
is the furthest from the truth. Yeah, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna read briefly what she said, and unpack a, a few things Andy said, so we can have a deep a deep dive on this because this is important. I believe the Biden administration um, has an, another opportunity that the Trump administration had, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But what Andy's saying is so true, and it's one of the, my biggest problems with U.S. policy toward Cuba has been since the Cuban Democracy Act has been since the Helms Burton Law, is that we can't tell other countries what to do. You can't cram this down the throats of the Cuban people and expect that to happen. It's just like I didn't support uh, the nation building uh, exercises that we were doing in the Middle East, all those wars uh, that uh, we've lost America's treasure and, and the billions have been spent for what? Uh, I, I just did not support uh, some of those engagements, never have and I never will. I don't believe you can export democracy. Uh, you can cultivate it, you can nurse it, uh, but in, in the Cuba case, forget it. It hasn't worked, folks. I mean, it's, it's to think that, that it's, it's a level of hubris and thinking that's grounded in the Cold War. The laws are out of date. But what Saki said yesterday, our Cuba policy, and I'm quoting, our Cuba policy is governed by two principles. First, support for democracy and human rights. That will be at the core of our efforts. Second, is Americans, especially like you said, are the best ambassadors. So we'll review Trump policy. You know, I, I worry about two things about this. One is that we're going to fall back into the uh, Washington ways of kicking the Latin America can down the street and wait until the second term, if he has one, or the second half of this term to do something just because they want to play politics with Florida. The other part I'm concerned about, it's this Venezuela policy. And uh, we don't talk politics on this show, but I, I will, you know, I'm, I, was, I was a supporter of President Trump but I was not a supporter of the way some of his advisors were telling him to handle the Venezuela issue or the Cuba issue. Uh, they, you know, th th there was a, a golden opportunity to try something different that did exactly what you said, put U.S. interests first and drive that as the primary vehicle. Uh, just, be, you know, you can support, you know, support democracy and human rights. It was Democrats and Republicans have been talking that empty nonsense for decades. Uh, we, of course, we support democracy and human rights, folks. I mean, that's, that's just that, that's what we do. That's America. We do that all over the world. But when it comes to Cuba, that's pablum. That's what the Republicans say. That's what the Democrats say. And we can do much better than that. There's there's American claims. There's Americans unlawfully imprisoned in Cuba. One of them in Miami, Florida, Alina Lopez, uh, who we've been asking. Yes. We've been asking Florida members of Congress to do something about this. But my, my question to you is. Uh, Andy, because we could talk for hours on this. Um, uh, it's a two-part question. One, let's focus on America for a moment. And then the other half is the Cuba question. Do you really think that, because uh, I had a Cuban in Cuba tell me this um, many, many years ago, say, listen, we know very well that the issue of Cuba has nothing to do with you all don't want to trade with us or anything like that. You're just protecting markets. There's people in Florida who do not want to trade with Cuba, and they're protecting the Florida market. They're protecting the Gulf state trade. It's, it's, it's really about economics. It's not really about human rights. Is, and then the other question is, are the Cubans ready? Because Obama went to Cuba, uh, opened up the embassy. I didn't like the way he did it. I'm glad that he challenged the policy. I wish he had done something else. But um, but look what the Cubans did to, to American diplomats that were stationed, we think, I, I don't know the, all the facts about what happened in Cuba to our diplomats. I do know that they were injured and it's been documented and we have to hold someone to account for what they did to Americans and their children. But what's going on here and how do we, um, how do we unpack for people what's really happening? Because I don't believe for a minute that this business about supporting democracy and human rights should be the centerpiece of our policy. It is important and it is the crux of what we do, but we're trying to find a solution, a different way out of this. We always support democracy and human rights, but but it has to be more than just talk about it. You know, many, Jason, you, you stated it very well. Many, many of my colleagues in the academic community in the last couple of weeks since uh, Joe Biden became president have been pushing for this thing of full engagement with the Cuba. Uh, but let me go first to your point about it is also about financial 
uh, and what impact if we open with Cuba economically will have like with Florida. Well, Cuba today doesn't grow oranges. Uh, the quality of the sugar cane is very poor uh, because they have not taken care of their soil. Uh, I mean, I can go on to it based on what agricultural experts have told me. Uh, Cuba, if you recall, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was rumor that there was oil in the northern coast of Cuba and the Norwegians came in, the Chinese, Cuba first got very excited because they saw it as a possible source of revenue. But then they also got very nervous because they thought, well, the Americans definitely will take advantage of this situation now. And that will put a tremendous pressure on being able to control the system politically. Eventually, the oil was too deep. The, it would cost too much to bring up, uh, process. Long story short, it was forgotten. So the economic principle, you know, I, 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 approach, um, I approach the whole issue of the embargo. Now there's a campaign on, on social media by having people whole signs asking this administration to bring down the embargo, which by the way, I don't think the Biden administration, given all the problems that it has inherited, primarily domestically, uh, Cuba's on top of the agenda. I dare to say it's not even on the, on the radar. Uh, it came up yesterday because a reporter asked Jen Psaki for a comment. Uh, but Cuba in itself had every opportunity when President Obama established or reestablished diplomatic relations and encouraged American entrepreneurs and business individuals, men and women, to possibly invest in Cuba. What was the problem? When they visited Cuba and their attorneys went and visited Cuba and they sat down with the Cuban government and the military that controls 62% to 65% of the economy, Cuban told them that they needed to control the majority of the investment and there were no guarantees. So the risk remained greater than the opportunities. One, yeah. two, mm -hmm. Cuba always puts on top of the agenda when we talk about negotiation, and they already did, that if they're going to sit down with a Biden administration, the embargo has got to be the first issue. Well, let's be real. In, when, you, when you talk diplomacy and international relations and negotiations, and you certainly have been involved in a great deal of this stuff, throughout your career. You don't give up something for nothing. That's right. Yeah. And I dare to say that Cubans haven't even brought Cuban coffee to the table when we've been to <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And this is, I was having almost this exact same conversation with a colleague who is helping in the Biden administration. Um, and yes, folks, I, I do have friends on the other side of the aisle and colleagues on the other side of the aisle, many on the other side of the aisle. I know you do. That they were asking me about Cuba. And I said, look, the advice that I would give to them if they were asking, it's the same advice I gave to the Trump people when they were asking. And it would be put U.S. interest at the top of the list. And in my book, no matter if it's Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, Mexico, England, doesn't matter to me. Whatever country we're dealing with, you always put U.S. national interest at the top of the list. In the case of Cuba, there's Americans unlawfully imprisoned there potentially as many as 20, including Alina Lopez from Miami, Florida, who's represented by the new Congresswoman down there. And we hope that they will get engaged to help bring her home. And every other issue that we have, like the, some of the issues Andy's talked about. And until Cuba starts to deliver on some of these basic issues, I think there's nothing to talk about with Cuba. 
absolutely nothing. Uh, and we can figure it out as we go, but we can't continue, I think, Andy, we agree on this, the same policy posture. Not to forget about what's in the, on the books. You and I agree and everybody agrees democracy, human rights is a cornerstone of our foreign policy. No question about that. I'm talking about deeper, more practical stuff. I'll give you an example, Jason. And I won't mention the uh, the diplomat's name. You know who he is. He was a high-ranking, former high-ranking diplomat in the Cuban government. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. And, okay. and his family goes back. Mm. I said, you know, it was simple. Why don't you, speaking of the Cuban government, why don't you guys come up with a long-term plan to repay American companies that were had their properties confiscated in, in the early 60s. Hmm. That might be a start for a discussion. But don't, like Diaz, Miguel Diaz-Canel, the Cuban president, go on television and say that President Biden needs to apologize to the Cuban government, the Cuban people for the atrocities that have been made. Let's be very clear. 99% of the problem in Cuba today have been created by the Cuban government, not the embargo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we remind folks that sanctions and embargoes are tools, are not policy. And the goal- Look, Obama, Obama, like you mentioned, President Obama and his people, you know, you know them very well. They knew going in that this was a long shot. They thought that maybe the Cubans would bend a little bit and you can try to start bringing about change through economic means. It didn't happen because the one thing that the Cuban government or the Cuban leadership is the most important to them is control. Now, somewhere, sometime in the very near future, these guys are going to disappear. They're going to die. Uh, Raul Castro, now uh, in April, uh, there's rumor when the Communist Party Congress meets in Havana that he's going to step down. He stepped down, you know, in 2018 and gave the presidency to Miguel Diaz-Canel, but we all know that he's the power behind the throne, just like Fidel was, you know, throughout his entire career. So, it really is up to the Cuban people, but then it becomes complicated internally. Let me just take a, a minute or two to try to explain this. Yeah, this, this, and for folks, this is very important. So be sure to pay close attention to this. You know, when we open up, the day we open up our embassy in, in Havana, an international reporter called me and says, how come the United States did not invite the dissidents, the Cuban dissidents to attend the event? And my answer was very simple. 11.3 million people don't fit in the grounds. <laughs> the majority of the Cuban people, and I, I exaggerated, but I stay like you in touch with many people on the island on a daily basis. The Marxist-Leninist ideology is over with. As a matter of fact, Academics, and I have the, 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 the writings with me here to prove it. In 1991, when the Soviet Union fell, Cuban academics were writing and warning the government that moving forward, the biggest challenge was going to be preserving the ideology of the revolution. A, there's a high school, probably the best high school in Cuba, uh, in Havana, Vladimir Lenin, where some of the top students have come out, some that I have seen here in exile and have been very good students in my classes. There was a, there's a professor who's now retired that I used to stay in touch and I, and I used to ask him, I said, you know, when it comes to teaching Marxist-Leninist ideology, and he stopped me, he said, don't even go there. They will start, the students will start booing me. They don't care about Marxist-Leninist ideology. They care about their future. They care about the economy. 
but on the other side, they care very little or not, not at all about politics. And that's also a concern. One of the things that I hope the Congress and the, um, the, the Biden folks and forget it, Republican Democrats, everybody, whoever will engage on this Cuba issue uh, will keep in mind is that we, we all have good intentions. Everybody has a, a theory about how to get there, but the bottom line is it's a policy that needs updating. It hasn't worked. Um, we, we, we're stuck in, uh, you know, legally, we, we, we have a law that's anchored in the Cold War that hasn't been updated. But what, forget about laws and forget about policy and talk. And we have to be cold with facts and understand that we need to find a different formula that doesn't revert back to the default position of what Democrats and Republicans have done on Cuba, where everyone agrees, but nothing, you know, you're not moving product. That when you talk to people on the island, and I talk to, you know, a lot of people on the island, and I work with folks who, human rights defenders, who are not famous people. These are folks who just want to be left alone. They say exactly what you're saying, you know, Marxist Leninism, forget that. We just want to eat, we want to have our businesses. We don't care about politics, which is kind of scary that most of them could care less for it. They don't like it. Uh, they, they don't trust anybody who's in the government. Uh, and it's, it's about the way they're living. And those are the people that we have to be connecting with because those are the people who are living that horror while we're over here living in freedom and, 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 and being able to have the luxury of recording this during a pandemic in air-conditioned rooms and safety. Well, guess what? A lot of the lawyers that I've collaborated with in Cuba don't have that safety, yet they still do their work. They go out and they try and defend people. They will, they, they, they walk miles to get to a courthouse in 80, 90 degree weather humidity, just because they have a client that needs help. And those are the people that we need to, we, we, we need to focus on and not this, you know, if you really want to help people get outside this old way to view the problem and kind of flip it and admit part of admitting and moving on to find new ways to do stuff is admitting something didn't work elements did work other elements did not work but folks you can't export democracy can't you be cannot. done can't be done uh, and 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 there's a certain hubris in our laws that maybe they made sense during the cold war uh, but we need to find another way and and you we, know when i get Jason, sorry to interrupt, but oh, go when, ahead. I get upset, when I get upset with some of these so-called uh, government officials and former diplomats in Cuba about blaming all of, you know, everything wrong with their system on us, I simply tell them that maybe what we should do is bring back the Platt Amendment and fix it for them. <laughs> yeah, for, for folks who don't know about the Platt Amendment, we'll do another show on that, but tell people briefly right. what the Platt Amendment was all about. And then, and, 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 then, and then we'll take a quick break. Go ahead. Very quickly, a plan amendment gave the United States the right to go intervene in Cuba if they got into trouble. Well, we, you know, we, we, we tried something like that in Iraq. It didn't turn out so well. It didn't turn out as well either, no. No, no. So we'll, we'll, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll hit to the last segment of the show. Uh, we'll talk a, a few more uh, minutes with Andy Gomez from uh, ex-University of Miami vice provost and all-around Cuba expert and just good people. We'll be right back. Andy, yeah, Milton, you know, you know Milton Friedman, and yeah, sure. You know, one of um, my favorite Milton Friedman moments. I'm a big fan, but when yeah. I share when I share with my friends who ask me about Cuba, what we could do with Cuba, and I I always say, well, of course, U.S. national interests come first. Follow the law, enforce the law, second, um, which is tied with the first. But something Milton Friedman talked about, he was asked a question about, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and all this advice that he gave to former communist states to become market economies. And back then he said, well, you know, you privatize and everything will go, will go fine. But a few years, many years later, there was, uh, he was asked that question in hindsight, hey, 
would you yeah. think that do you think that was the right advice? And yeah. remarkably, Milton Friedman said, you know, no, it wasn't. He he which was unusual for him to backtrack on something. I think he was responding to a question about China. Uh, but he was saying uh, China engagement, that the engagement with China would change everything and and well, look what would happen, uh, what's happening now. Uh, he said there were two things that he probably should have emphasized. Privatized, no doubt. And the second thing he said I should have said, but I didn't say, was the primacy and the importance of the rule of law. And yeah. to him, uh, that he felt would have been a better combination. Do you think in Cuba, we know there's no rule of law in Cuba. You can't even practice law by your, I mean, this is really odd. Right. You, if you're All a lawyer right. in Cuba, you can't practice law legally on your own. You have to work for the state. No. It's very, right. it, how far is Cuba from allowing lawyers to practice law on their own without the government uh, hounding them? I, I would dare to say they're very far from it, period. Uh, that's one way of uh, controlling what they do and how they do it. I mean, very far away, you know. You know, Jason, going back to this whole issue of transition, you know, in academia, uh, there's three factors that must be taken into consideration when you talk about the transition of an individual country. Number one, it's history. And certainly Cuba's history is very complicated from the beginning. It's culture. And we do have a very rich culture and a very diverse culture that sometimes we forget that today, 62% of those living in Cuba are black or mulatto. Right. And three, the environmental factors by which you have lived and grown up with. And I'm not talking about clean air. I'm talking about, you know, what are the, you, and you mentioned, what are the values that you have received at home or a school or the university or, or the lack thereof? And, you know, that's why, you know, I, I remember even here when, uh, when I was at the Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies at the University of Miami, that we brought in Taiwanese transition experts, very smart academics. But my point was, how far is that from reality? Mm -hmm. Number one, we are not as disciplined. Actually, we might be the most undisciplined people on the face of the earth, but that's another issue. <laughs> we are far away from being as disciplined as the Taiwanese Oh, or any of the Asian cultures which are rich in history and extremely disciplined. We are not very disciplined. So to think that you can take not just democracy, but it take a system of government in one country and apply it to the other is absolutely erroneous. That's right. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine if during the, when Washington was crossing the Delaware uh, or when we were fighting the revolutionary battles against King George and his, and his, and his tyrants, um, what would have happened if the United Nations had existed? And I, I started saying that as a joke, but it's true. Yeah. We probably, under this international order that we have today, America wouldn't exist. We'd still be subjects of the British crown because we've, um, it's a, it's an, a topic for another show, but the bottom line is you can't force this on people. It has, no, to, come, it, it, it has to come from them. You know, if the Cuban people want to follow a socialist path, you know what? It's their business. They'll do it. I don't believe they will, but we have to give them that space. So if America follows their national interest, if we follow the law and, and Cubans are given space, we have to give them space to do what they got to do. This and that's a, very, that's a very important point that we don't recognize. And let me be a little bit more specific. Here in exile, and particularly in South Florida, we talk all the time, as you know, about the opposition leaders and the dissidents and Cubans that are, are very brave men and women, as you know, out in the streets and talking and facing jail times and being arrested all the time. You have to go to Cuba and meet with them and listen to them and talk to them to realize 
how diverse their opinions are. Right. And I have to tell you, seldom, I did hear about change of government, but seldom that I hear any one of them telling them how easy democracy would be to be built in Cuba. Yeah. They, they, they understand it, or at least most of them do, but they also realize that it is a very far-fetched goal. I mean, let's be realistic. We just witnessed something, whether good or bad, depending on how we want to see it, and I don't want, I'm not going to get into it, or what happened in the capital of the United States. Well, you know how I took that as a lesson in democracy of how important it is for us Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, to continue to build on our democracy, to continue to teach the responsibilities that each citizen has within a democracy, to continue to teach civic education in school and more US government and comparative politics in order for the students, both in K through 12 and in universities to fully understand the importance that each of us has in sustaining our democratic way of life. And let me tell you something, that's the core mission of what we do here at, at Global Liberty Alliance. We focus on defense of what, you know, the fundamental individual rights, free markets and the rule of law. And I'm glad you mentioned what happened on the 6th of January. All Americans, no matter your political ideology or background, must condemn political violence. That's not how America resolves its problems. We don't fight with each other with guns. We don't fight with each other with uh, 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 mob tactics, no matter if you do it at the Capitol or if you do it downtown DC or if you're burning down the West Coast. That is unacceptable. We don't do that here. And uh, we, we, what was remarkable about that day, uh, because we lived through it here and it was a shock to see, was the fact that within hours though, that Senate and that House got back together and they, finished, yeah, and they finished the process civilly. And it showed me, yes, everybody's focused on the negative, but I've always told folks, I believe in our constitution. I believe in the Republic. I believe in the rule of law. And, and you saw it there that day in hours. Perfect example. In one day, in hours. And I've had people in Cuba, lawyers in Cuba, who saw that and said, man, that's remarkable. If that had happened here, it, it, would have, it, it, it wouldn't happen there. But they, they just said that continuity. This, the, so you saw all these people there. There was all this violence in the, in, in the early afternoon. And then in the evening, they were back to business. Uh, of course, I don't like what's happened since. We have all these all, all this military here. That is again, uh, not not for today's show. That's a, a problem that we're going to have to talk about long term. It's not good to have people around the Capitol surrounding it like some war zone. Uh, that's you know, that's unacceptable. But that one day, the the system shows it's strong. Americans don't like that, and the, uh, uh, and Biden was certified, and and the process continued peaceful transfer but we cannot take it for granted no you, you can't need to, no, no, you no. need to work on it and that's that's the point that you and i are making yeah and the education that we started talking about the beginning of the show on a topic completely unrelated to this has come back again like you just said it starts uh, you know I, i'm going to go back to the very beginning you know when i became under secretary of education in Massachusetts, uh, I, I uh, being a, a state official, of course, I could not put my daughters in a private school. So I looked for one of the better public schools and we moved in that community. Mm -hmm. In my first months in Massachusetts, I went and traveled around and visited schools. I visited my oldest daughter's middle school that year was 1991, that particular day, in 1991. She was taking a class on the fall of the Soviet Union with a book published that same year. Wow. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
I went to one of the more poor, one of the poorest school systems right outside Boston. And I walked into a high school. They were using a history book published in 1963. Hmm. So what I'm saying is that Accessibility to education is something that we in a democracy must continue to work for and demand because right. that is the basis from where a democracy grows. And I think there right now, there are many lessons that we have learned from the last couple of weeks that I look at them extremely positive rather than negative moving forward, if we act on them. What's your advice? And this is how we usually close the show since we've come to the end and we could probably keep going as our listeners have gathered, but what advice, you know, what do you share? Why should Americans, and this is her, we've heard, we're heard in over 50 countries, almost 60 countries, but we're a US based organization and a lot of folks in the States listen to this show. What advice or why do you think Americans should care about what's happening in Cuba? What, why does this matter to them? Why does what happens in Latin America matter? Why should they care? Well, let me begin. First and foremost, I don't think Americans have ever understood Latin America. I still have people as I used to travel from university to university lecturing. Uh, asked me the question, uh, is it true that not everybody in Latin America speaks Spanish? Wow, yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, remember, since the Alliance for Progress under the Kennedy administration, we have poured a lot of money into Latin America. Uh, there's a lot of corruption in Latin America right across our borders. I mean, I might get in trouble for this, but Mexico is one of the countries with the highest corruption. It's always been. Our money has not followed policy. We have not had a concrete and sustainable policy. We have not trained people in those countries to sustain the help that we have given them. It's been a hit and miss approach. Now, Cuba. Why should Americans care about Cuba? Well, you know, Part of the problem I blame on the Cuban-American community, Jason, because I think we have been arguing Cuba politics south of Orlando in our state of Florida. North of Orlando, it's been very different. It, it amazes me how many times I travel to universities across the entire United States and how little Americans, academics, not just students, knew about Cuba. I'll give you a concrete example. You know that I was invited to lecture in one, in one of the first ships that went to Cuba. And I was hesitant because I guess, you know. I, I, you took a lot lecture. of grief. You, you took a lot of grief for doing that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, but I felt it was important because again, Americans needed to know. And, and I told, I told the, the cruise company that I would only do it if I had academic freedom to say what I needed to say. And I wasn't gonna go nuts on them. I mean, I, I tell you, I, I don't get intimidated, as you know, and like you, walking into an audience in a classroom and, and, and lecturing. When I walked into the stage, and you've been on ships too, and I saw the auditorium people, I mean, the other events had to be canceled. Everybody in the ship was in that auditorium. Wow. Wow. Me lecturing in Cuba, and I gave four lectures before we arrived in Havana. Perfect example. When it came down to Q&A, I had a lady ask me very nicely, and, and, and she was very sincere. When we got off the ship, where can she find a Starbucks? Mm. They knew nothing about Cuba. Mm. They knew nothing about Cuba. They, 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 were, they were going to visit a country that has stopped living, functioning, in the 1950s. In other words, it was a 
nostalgic trip based on some of the movies that they had seen here in the United States. But you know what? To this day, I can, I can tell you how many of those same American tourists and, and why I got in trouble was because I told them, do not take the tour that the government is going to offer you. You're only going to see the side of Cuba they want you to. Hmm. You need to see the real Cuba, and I made suggestions to them. But to this day, they have still, many of them have still stayed in touch with me because they became curious about Cuba and the struggle for human rights the economic challenges that the people face each day in trying to put food on the table, the lack of hope for the future that young people have. I mean, when, when, you, when you tell Americans, and you know this very well, that there's no freedom of expression or respect for human rights, oh, you're touching a very you know, sensitive nerve. They get very upset very upset. So why should American care about Cuba? At this point where we find ourselves uh, today under a new administration and with all these problems, I, 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 the only way that I can say why Americans should care for Cuba is because the Cuban people don't have the precious commodity that each of us have when we wake up each day of our lives. Freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And on that note, Andy Gomez from Miami, thank you very much for taking time from your very busy schedule. Even though I know you're not at the university anymore, you're still keeping extremely busy. And today, I know you have a few more interviews to do. So thank you. And I hope you will consider coming back with us in a few weeks. It will be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.